From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, hey, what do you know? We have finally come to the end of the road of my trip and my time here in Asia. Now that doesn't mean that's the last you're going to hear of people I've talked with here in Asia. It just means I'm not going to be in Asia anymore. I'm going to be going to other places around the world. And well, as we wrap up season five, these are some of the things that, well, I guess you can keep your mind on. But this week we have another special guest. And actually this guest goes all the way back to Scottish Arbitration Fest and some of the conversations that we had there. And then of course we'll do a Hong Kong arbitration recap after that. And then we'll hit you with some hard-hitting, fast, really deep, impactful conversations with folks from Hong Kong Arbitration Week and some exciting interviews. If you're following the news feed, you'll have seen some of those people, but we'll bring that to you over the course of the next couple of weeks. So without further ado, this week we have a very special guest, Ms. Carita Walgren Lindholm, who is an arbitrator, very active voice in the international arbitration community, and she was kind enough to sit down with us after Scottish Arbitration Fest, after all the good times that were had. Shout out to uh, Mr. McKenzie and Paul, of course, for your great hospitality while we were in Edinburgh. And um, look, we had a great conversation. We talked about a number of things, talked about different perspectives in international arbitration, and developing your own perspective and your own um, voice in international arbitration, and of course, your time with the ICC Commission. So sit back, enjoy the conversation. I think you're going to get a lot out of it, and I will see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, we are finally wrapping up our time here at Scottish Arbitration Fest. It is, in fact, just mere hours before we depart, but we had one last conversation that we wanted to get on the record. We have a very special guest with us today, and I'm very well, glad to welcome Ms. Corita Walgren-Lindholm. Corita, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Fantastic. And so, Karita, you know, um, just before we have gone on, uh, the listeners will have heard sort of a little bit of your background and a little bit of uh, the things that you've done in your career. But here at the festival, you spoke as the headliner, the second headliner. And I do love uh, the way that they frame this here at Scottish Arbitration Day, more like a festival truly than a conference. But you spoke on the role of smaller states, seats, and institutions in international arbitration. Now, we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but before we get there, I'm going to ask the question that we ask all of our guests. Where are you from, and what do the people need to know? Uh, you already got my name, Chris, and you got it right. Uh, I'm uh, from Finland. I am uh, quite senior, age-wise, and um, I, um, uh, I went to school in Finland. I'm of the Swedish language minority in Finland, so I actually went to Swedish 
kindergarten school and, and I have my law degree from Finland uh, in the Swedish language and uh, grew up in a small town, small town girl. I think that that affects your worldview. Sure, yeah. You'll always look out uh, over your shoulder to wonder if neighbors are seeing that you're doing the right or the wrong thing. Um, and um, uh, I spent my sophomore year in Georgia. Uh, I got a Rotary scholarship. Um, and I started my career in France for reasons that I will explain to you if you're interested. And now I live partly in Finland and um, partly in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. wow. Um, it's not the glamorous type of being. It's nice, but I, I work from there. And, and there, are, of course, as there always is in life, reasons for me ending up there. And um, I come to Scotland whenever I'm asked because I believe that they have a lot of good energy here. Oh, very well. Well, lots of interesting threads there um, and certainly some questions we'll follow up on. Um, maybe the first one is that one, the little tease you gave us. How did you end up in France or what was the reason for staying there? So, When I graduated having first... Um, majored in languages, I could not get a, uh, a job in Helsinki in a business law firm mm. because they thought that my profile, um, having studied French and English and uh, being a girl, probably made me not suitable for the corporate business law firms. And my profile was wrong. So I, um, I wrote my, my um, master's thesis at the university about ICC arbitration. And so I had um, a friend in Paris who said, well, you speak French. Why don't you come to an um, American law firm in Paris? So I applied. I applied to 10 firms and one responded. Okay. That was what is now Jones Day in Paris. Okay. So I got this fancy office because they didn't know what, quite what to do with this uh, girl from, you know, a marginal country that people hardly knew where it was. Um, so I uh, I spent some time there, and then I was recruited to another French American firm. Uh, so uh, you applied to ten, one responded, and then after you do well there, and then they want to recruit you away, right? <laughs> well, I guess my profile also, even though I got a job in France, it was still odd. I mean, most people hadn't met the Finn. They didn't know uh, what it was all about. But it was fun because I, I must tell you that, I don't know, do you know Charles Adams? I, maybe in passing, I don't know him well. He, uh, he actually worked at the firm, Surrey and Morse at the time that became Jones Day and it was it was fun because we um, met again after 40 years when uh, Obama appointed him, um, him ambassador to Finland so you know it's nice how circles close absolutely absolutely and it, well that that's quite um, an interesting anecdote right yeah <laughs> um, going uh, from there pulling another thread from that same uh, sort of background you talked about that you you're obviously worked in law um, your entire career. Then the question I guess I have is before, at the very beginning of that, did you always know that you wanted to go to law school, that you wanted to be a lawyer? No. 
I wanted to become a diplomat, but uh, I, at that time it wasn't very organized, the diplomatic service in Finland. They also thought, I think politically, maybe I, I wasn't political, so they didn't want me then. Mm. And um, no, I studied languages and international politics, and uh, um, uh, but then I realized that I also needed to know something substantive and um, many of my friends went to law school so I said maybe that's what I'll do. Interesting and well look I, I will tell you you are not the only member of our uh, alumni list of the podcast of people that wanted to be diplomats first in fact we have a handful. Um, so that's interesting so you've said a couple of times you've studied languages what languages do you have in your repertoire? King lang- I mean I already said that my native language is Swedish I obviously speak Finnish I did the judge training, and they're also re- they require, of course, an impeccable knowledge of the majority language. And then I work in English and French. Uh, since I, as a student of, of Romance languages, I also had to have Latin. I also have some idea of of, of Spanish. Oh, very well. I sometimes manage to speak English too. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think uh, especially in our field, it's it's very common for folks to have at least you know two, sometimes three, and so having four or five. I mean, that's really impressive. Um, going from there, and so I think we're, we've understood we're getting a little bit of an understanding of your origin into the field, um, or at least into law, and um, kind of where that's taken you. How about international arbitration and disputes specifically? What was the the sort of pathway there? How did you go from um, being in law to arbitration specifically? When um, when I studied law, I wanted to study public international law, but then people said, you know, what are you going to do with that? So I studied private international law, which was the conduit in those days um, into international arbitration. Many of, of people of, of my generation who are in international arbitration actually started with comparative law, with private international law. And my professor was very interested in arbitration at the university, so I wrote my master thesis about ICC arbitrations. And um, uh, that's how I started. Then when I w- was in Paris, I did my first ICC arbitration, uh, carrying the um, uh, carrying the bag of, of Chris Seppel, whom I'm sure you know. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I worked with him and, and, and Eric Schwartz okay, sure. uh, at Cabinet Archibald at the time. So I did my first arbitration then. We went to London, I think, in the 1980. Um, uh, but then when I came back to Helsinki, uh, I wanted to go back to Helsinki also to start a, a family. I thought that was easier uh, in Finland. And I remember Chris telling me, you're going to ruin your career. Why do you leave Paris? But I did. We're still very good friends. And so um, I came to Finland, but uh, my firm there, it wasn't easy, I tell you, to get a, um, a job at one of the big firms either because they thought now that I had been in Paris... I was even more bizarre. One senior telling me, you know, a girl who has spent much time under the crystal chandeliers in Paris cannot possibly adapt to the austerity of, of, of our work. So I remember it was very difficult, and um, I finally ended up at Rochier, 
where I spent then 25 years. But they said, oh, no, young lady, here you don't have the luxury of, of doing only international arbitration. You've got to get into corporate law. And because here we do everything. And I did, and of course, in retrospect, that was good. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, and I bet that that sort of exposure to a lot of different areas, a lot of different fields sort of deepened your understanding, deepened your perspective and allowed you to sort of uh, chart the next stages of your career. Is that right? I often say to, to young women I speak to that actually nothing I did or have done, I think, has has been in vain in view of sitting as an arbitrator today, including raising children and, and um, uh, taking part in their daily lives. I think everything that you've done, even things that seemed very asymmetrical, my career certainly wasn't linear, and, uh, you know, even that, I think, has, has some function in today. Well, right. And, and I think that point that you make um, is especially important. I think uh, a lot of people, millennials and younger, are kind of having these existential questions of, okay, you want to be at the top of your profession, you want to be competitive, but you also want to have time to, to perhaps start a family, to pursue your own personal interest, or, I don't know, take a nap every while, now and again. And, um, and I think sometimes they struggle with that. Um, the children are raised are three daughters, and uh, not surprisingly, we've had many discussions um, in this vein. Um, what I say these days is not always popular, um, but I think that um, uh, it is not necessarily helpful to sub-optimize every little step of your existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I do this, then what happens? And if I do that, then what happens? Sometimes just allow things to happen and take it from there. I think uh, managing every little step and not accepting that sometimes uh, you can't do everything in one breath. But I've been saying that to young associates in the firm for decades, and they didn't like me saying it. I, I think, well, I think our profession, I think our craft is full of people that like certainty, <laughs> that like to know exactly what's going to happen. And so, exactly. and so right. when you get into a situation where you're saying, okay, just be okay with there being a little bit of uncertainty, I think they get very nervous. <laughs> right, that was it, yeah. Okay, okay, so we're getting, again, piece by piece as we're walking through this story of, um, you know, how you got into the legal field, um, where that took you throughout your career, and then eventually into international arbitration. Um, you know, we'll certainly want to talk about a specific things, a couple of specific things here in a moment, but what about that, that the most recent chapter? I mean, as an arbitrator, I mean, how did you then go, what, at what point did you decide you wanted to be an arbitrator, and what has that been like? It was a decision. Mm. But uh, I, I did sit, as many of us do in, in the Nordic countries, as a, as a city court judge for a year. You get a certain title, that, that like in Germany a bit, that you have, have trained on the bench. And um, I kind of liked it, but that was, you know, family law, criminal law and all that. So, so that wasn't really my field. Um, 
I think that what it actually, it was a natural course. I, I started getting appointments. I did some arbitrations. And I think that the first appointment probably came from an institution, as, as it always is, because courses that didn't land me naturally a job in a law firm in Helsinki, the same forces also didn't think I was a natural choice as a party <laughs> appointed arbitrator. But it was actually the Stockholm Chamber um, who gave me the, the first appointments. And then I was active as, as young people are. I, I was sitting on the board of the Finnish Arbitration Association and the Finnish Chamber and, and also in the Swedish Arbitration Association. And I started getting appointments and then I became a member of the ICC Commission in 1996, a while ago. And just a few years. <laughs> yeah, just a few years. Um, I guess, and, and if you are in that milieu, then obviously you start getting appointment, but it was absolutely clear that the, the institutional appointments came first. I think there was for a long time a perception also uh, that women uh, were not business minded, maybe a bit too academic, not business minded. So in business disputes, I um, uh, there were first um, um, institutional appointments and and. Uh, I sometimes laugh and say that then when the party appointments started coming, maybe it was that that you <laughs> you lose your gender with age or something. But, uh, <laughs> but, but in any event, now, of course, it's more even. Well, sure, sure. And, um, and, and again, we're, we are sort of slowly angling towards uh, the talk about your time with the ICC, but I think you've raised an important point that um, it's important to pick up on there. Especially recently, you know, over the last, you know, well, it feels like it's a much longer conversation, but especially the last decade, it feels like there's been, if nothing else, at least an increased conversation around the need and importance of diversity. Um, more recently in the ethnic and cultural context, yeah. but it certainly started with gender, with organizations like Arbitral Women, yeah. um, who's a great friend of the show, um, and these types of initiatives. I wonder, from your perspective, what that has looked like to you. Have you noticed a difference or... Um, or maybe with some of the other changes that you still think are are, are important for the field, perhaps? There, there has been a change, and um, uh, as a Nordic person, I guess I am not naturally very affirmative action, gender-wise. I guess that we were raised not to, um, to take issue everything we encountered maybe it's uh, it's uh, in a country that has suffered from war and lots of things there's a lot of just get on with it type sure. of mentality I actually was um, when arbitral women was founded I was on the first board actually there was uh, uh, we started it was after c some commission meetings we starting uh, started having these little encounters that then uh, developed into arbitral women sure. with Mireille Philippe and Louise Barrington, you know, many, many moons ago. We've had Mireille on the Louise will get you eventually, but yeah, we've had now Grita, Mireille, yeah, it's becoming a, th a trend. <laughs> the, the, yes, so uh, 
there there is the conversation and the conversation um, has to be has to be had however i also must say the way the conversation sometimes developed develops and um, this is too delicate of an issue um, but i will tell you that i sometimes think that the search for words to achieve political correctness is not always helpful to the substantive development no I, I, you know obviously we won't uh, spend the whole time talking about this but i i think i understand what you mean in the sense that sometimes there can be an obsession with the value without the attention to the merit <laughs> exactly. or the, or the actual progress of the thing and you sort of miss the point um in the search of saying oh well we have to achieve this goal so we have to be more diverse to be less diverse and it's like wait uh, yeah i think that this is such a delicate question and it, it is such a long conversation but i do think that striving for extraordinary correctness in lingua sometimes takes away the nuances and and the sort of bloodfulness and the merits of of the conversation that's right and i think that you know the last point that i'll make on it is sometimes what you then will get is people that are in fact the same as the the previous folks the previous majority but just in a different skin tone or in a different you know lgbt status or a different um gender but they're exactly the same and the whole point of diversity in the first place is diversity of thought and perspective um and that is very well said and there is there is some dynamic i am not a behavioral scientist and and i suspect you are not but, but there is something about you know uh acquired rights and empowered it sort of cements a certain situation and then the ingredients can be this or that that's right no um uh, very interesting i mean i think that uh if we want to see actual progress, we have to have these kind of conversations. Um, otherwise, the nuance is lost and the progress is lost, to be honest. Well, look, you know, we buried the lead a little bit. We've talked about um, a number of things, um, and I want to make sure that we have time to discuss your time um, and your work with the ICC and, and perhaps what you're uh, doing now. Um, so you've talked about a little bit about how you started to get involved with the ICC. Tell us a little bit about what it was like um, working with the institution in that way, um, having that sort of role in the community, maybe anything that you recall um, from your time. Um, at the Yesterday, um, and of course the undercurrent of much what I say is that sometimes when you look around yourself, there is a lot of entitlement and acquired rights, and they are sort of... Uh, there are certain places where people don't want to go in order to um, to change things and make reform. Uh, let me maybe start by saying that uh, I felt the ICC was my home. I mean, I, I, I was there already in the 80s when I worked in the Paris law firms. I was often, because the partners were too busy, I was sent to meetings there with my notepad and, (laughs) you know, (laughs) looking, trying to look important. Uh, So I've been there for a long time, but it is clear, I am Nordic, where the communication is straighter, there's less hierarchy. Mm. And if I would say one of the things, and you never know uh, in arrears what... uh, what you've done or, or, or what the 
importance of your work is, but certainly one of the things that I tried to achieve was that everybody in the know on an issue, regardless of their position in hierarchy, uh, could always be part of the conversation if if we wanted to to do something or achieve something. I think that the ICC as a an organization where well, there's a French environment and French culture, but also American leadership, which in in my book, I'm not talking about uh, Claudia Salomon now who who came later, but at, at the time when when I went there, uh, Claudia is a very down to earth, uh, hands on person, but um, uh, there is. Um, I think in the American business culture, much more the boss is the boss than than we're used to. So I think, now answering your question a bit in this roundabout way, that I thought that the structures were such that you had to try to to go through the invisible uh, walls sometimes. Uh, to get communication going and one of the things that I think I have said publicly before is that I wanted to get away from the culture that you didn't say things in the open room or in the plenary you always then went into the corridors or to private chambers mm. to discuss issues of, of discontent um, I think the world is going that way too and and uh, uh, I think Claudia is going that way too. I mean, and and certainly that isn't to say that there isn't tact or that there isn't you know um, sort of thought into how issues are framed and brought to the fore. But it is to say people should say what they mean because masquerading it or obfuscating means that there's an opportunity for miscommunication. It means that the the underlying point is missed. There's not an opportunity for everyone involved, all the stakeholders, to have an opportunity to consider and to be heard. Of course, you, you have to have a conversation, but I also think that that um, the fact that problematic issues are always packaged um, in, in private rooms is, um, uh, is not the way to get everybody to buy into, into, into conversations. And as you know that, that um, there are national committees in the ICC um many of them which all have their own daily needs and interests and and problems and what i noted uh, there were always of course issues with uh, some some national committees weren't happy with their situation but what i always found and i think that this is uh, what i fundamentally believe is that if you have a conversation um, time is, of course, always the issue. You can't always sit down and talk with everybody. But if you have a conversation, open it up, ask everybody to state their views. It kind of lowers the temperature. And, and p even part of the issues go away just then and there. Well, that's right. I mean, I think um, what we know, whether it's in arbitration, mediation, or really any sort of negotiation, the first thing you have to do is hear what the other side is saying. <laughs> and... Uh, the person you're speaking to has to have a sense of having been heard. Because, well, even if you hear them, if they don't feel like they've been heard, that that's true, that uh, there won't be much progress made. So I think that's really well said. Yeah, I guess any anybody from the Nordic region in business would say that um, 
they think that the the sort of flat structures are conducing to um, uh, to a good interaction with stakeholders. However, I must also say that you then need to have the courage to be unpleasant, and then when once it's decided to dive it th- drive it through, I mean, there needs to be leadership also and courage, and uh, not the fear for not being liked because especially you know with uh, thousand members in the ICC commission it is clear that there's going to be many people who certainly don't like what you do on a particular issue you know maybe this is a a bit of a random connection but i almost see the through line from what we were talking about earlier of being comfortable with the unpredictable the unknown to say that you know you have a clear idea or vision of how an issue should be dealt with what it is and how you're going to go forward and being okay with the fact that some people might just disagree, and that's okay. Needs to be that. Uh, uh, I think you will know that lawyers are independent thinkers, and it's also important to recognize that when they represent their individual jurisdictions, their issues are different. So they are by necessity focus on different things. Sure, sure, and I think that especially when you consider, you know, some things that are just systemic in nature, right? You know, a common law, a civil, my civil law friends are never going to understand discovery and the need for it, um, which is that that's the low-hanging fruit. Um, and likewise, uh, you know, how <laughs> laws can kind of just evolve from a series of cases. I mean, that just, um, but that's okay. I mean, it's a different, it's a different approach, and it's not less. It's just different. It's just different. Um, I guess the next question I would have, or I guess maybe just sort of staying along with that same thread, is I wonder if there are any accomplishments or, or maybe things that uh, you were able to achieve or the commission achieved during its time at the ICC that you look back fondly on, that you're proud of, or things that um, that, that you think positively about, if anything. <laughs> you framed that question very diplomatically. That's the kind of question I... Uh, I actually think it's for others to answer. I always answer in this manner. Uh, This is a cultural thing. Uh, I don't want to say that I achieved something because I don't know, and it's for others to say. When you interview somebody else, you can ask, do you think that Carita, uh, you know, achieved some of her ambitions to making the commission more inclusive? and uh, then you get an answer. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And I did try to ask it as, I you know. You know, uh, you referenced it a little bit earlier in this conversation. So we'll just try being mindful that we don't have the same sort of uh, time frame that we did at the conference. But um, the, the topic that you spoke on was the role of smaller states, seats, and institutions in international arbitration. Um, for those folks listening at home that did not come the Scottish Arbitration Fest. Um, what are some of the, maybe a bullet point or two that you think is important from uh, from that conversation, um, if there's anything that really sticks out to you in that address? Um, I think it was a bit of a summary of how I, I look at the world of arbitration. And I don't speak uh, much uh, any longer. I actually, right now, I have... Uh, left a bit the the conversational part and and participating in what you know hopefully some thought leadership and I actually do hard work more because I think I have said and 
you know, I have said what I have to say, and, and I don't know if I can add more value. I think that we need to open up for, for others to converse. However, uh, the summary of, of what I, I think uh, is that, um, uh, and this ties into our conversation uh, about a bit of, of, quote, my path, if you wish, that I believe that smallness and a certain marginalization, if that is an English word. <laughs> yeah, sure. Marginalization, yeah. Yes, and, and um, fosters a culture and a mindset that will uh, prove to be an asset in today's world. And uh, more concretely, that means that, uh, and I think that applies to the Scottish arbitration uh, center, is that if you don't take yourself as a given, you don't take your procedures, your existence uh, as a given, if you're not too powerful, if you're a bit of an underdog, I think you are more open uh, to make diversity feel at home i think that's true um and i think well i think that that that's well sort of uh neatly and concisely stated um obviously there's a lot more that we could d- dive into there but uh, well if they want to hear the rest they should have been um at the <laughs> yeah. actually you know um andrew mckenzie he asked me uh if he could publish it mm, okay uh and um it was a bit provocative, but I said, since I say it, why not? So I've said he can. In retrospect, it seems to me that if if we wish to make international arbitration um, uh, a place where diversity truly uh, can feel at home, uh, certain of... Um, our uh, strong <laughs> innate perceptions of how things uh, need to be by necessity. We need to let them go. And I think that, that what I, I, I seem to believe today is that it is easier to be re- a relativist if your own situation isn't so established and secure. You don't come from a big jurisdiction. You don't have everything you are not used to thinking that most things are a given and i think that that little uncertainty again and and hesitation makes you look at others and how they are doing things that ultimately being less privileged can turn out to be a good force in today's world i think that's well said i think that's uh, really well said um, you know, one more question before we sort of shift uh, uh, sort of paces and tempos a little bit. Um, any final thoughts about, you know, the things that you're working on now or any of the comments about uh, uh, that you have about just international arbitration in 2023? Um, I, I think that the discussions on AI and, and all this, I will, will leave to others more knowledgeable. I, I do think that international arbitration is at the juncture and needs to be rethought. And we know that there are lots of, of, of projects of that nature. Uh, and myself, I started as a commercial arbitrator. 
and now I'm doing also uh, investment arbitration, which I somehow think, you know, the circles close. I want to be a diplomat. I did also when I was in the States. Uh, my sophomore year, I studied a lot of international politics and uh, emerging nations. So I think that the circle closes because also... Uh, in when um, uh, you do the investment arbitration, it is more societal than commercial arbitration, sure. and and uh, so maybe I kind of came back home, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> full circle, full circle. <laughs> yes, I think so. So uh, yeah. Um, let's uh, let's turn the page a little bit, uh, shift into the back half of our or the back portion of our conversation. I'm going to ask you a really tough hardball question. Okay. Um, what's on your bookshelf? What are you reading right now? I am reading uh, three, four books, but since I live on many places, they are also in different places. But I'm finishing one, Elena Ferrante, uh, obviously, uh, then. Uh, I started uh, rereading Milan Kundera's. The um, uh, I read. It, I think I read it in in English. The what is the unbearable lightness of being? Right, exactly. That is in English. Yes, I <coughs> and I think I, I have read it sometime as a young person in in, in Swedish. Uh, then I'm reading one about how the Nordics were involved in colonization, which we always thought they weren't. Um, and um, I just finished um, uh, A Gentleman in Moscow, a more uh, this investment banker turned uh, author great. And then I always try to read on Isabella Allende from time to time because she's so, I like this be between reality and um, surrealism. I think that that speaks to me. Sure. No, I mean, well, look, uh, not only are you managing to read, you're managing to read uh, three to four really <laughs> sort of in-depth <laughs> titles there. You know what? That might not be managing to read. It might be... <laughs> really not getting anywhere just <laughs> I must say that since uh, uh, I I actually like reading very much and when I take a book there's always the fear that I can't put it down but as a as a student of, of French and English I obviously had to read through all the classics in those languages which I loved and and maybe maybe uh, one day I will get back to that. Oh, I mean, and so uh, I've given up on having physical copies of my books, um, usually audio books. And then if you go to my audio library, it's just like a dozen books, <laughs> like all started. Like, oh, okay, I'll come back. I'll come back. I know exactly what you mean, believe me. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, okay, uh, next question. Again, another hard one. Um, what kind of music are you into? Do you have any favorite genres or artists? I could say it is probably as diverse as my, my taste for literature. Uh, in one breath, I am equally fond of, and this is no order of priority, um, opera, country music, and uh, the classic Argentina and tango. Mm, okay. And also, I very much enjoy also 
the the Caribbean music now that I'm becoming very familiar with. Sure, you're spending so much time there. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Okay. Um, well, listen, uh, just a couple of final questions. Um, one question that I always enjoy asking folks, especially folks that have been working in the field for a while, is let's say you're approached by... Um, you know, a recent graduate or a new entrant into the field. Um, any advice that you would give them for breaking into international arbitration? Um, I think that one of the things I always say to the uh, young and aspiring, especially women, don't let anybody coach you into behavior that is not natural to you. Mm. You can only succeed, I think, over time if you build upon your own strengths. And there's been too much coaching of women to become little men mm. and add aggression that isn't necessarily there. And I always say, sometimes you're listened to when you lower your voice. And I don't know if we have time for this, but it's interesting because I tested this on an American lawyer. And of course, I think generally speaking, you can say that American litigation can be seen as quite aggressive from time to time. And I asked him about my thesis that uh, uh, a woman who doesn't feel very aggressive, who is a lower your voice type of person, I think that she can also succeed if she builds on that strength. And he started laughing. I said, you know, I was in court yesterday and there was a woman and she didn't do any of the things I expected. She didn't hit back. She didn't get defensive. She just stepped back, and he said, I couldn't handle it. I didn't know what to do in the situation, so I said, good. <laughs> you know, that's this anecdotal. There's a lot of merit to it, um, and look, without you know, talking about my litigation strategy or tactics, I will say that there is that sort of expectation that as a litigator, especially an American one, that you're going to go rah, 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 yell, slam the table, and all that stuff, and so it does throw people a bit off, where if you just come in and say, well, let's have a conversation, yeah. and then you can sort of just take apart the the fallacies of the issues one by one instead of being so performing for your client and showing strength there i think that uh, what you did for the client will be evaluated at the end of the day and there just needs to be some patience that the theater necessarily doesn't get you and i can say uh certainly and not that i'm speaking on behalf of baker hughes but as an in-house um you know, I don't really much care if you've you know performed and done all this stuff. If we still lose, if we still don't get the goal achieved, I'd rather you do um, what's reasonable and pragmatic in the motion if we're going to have a better chance of winning. That sounds like somebody else I've uh, known in, in in your company. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll we'll give him a shout out here when we get to the very end of the the episode here in a moment. Um, one more question, and this one is a uh, I think a fun one, um, not a hard question. Okay. Let's say that it's five p.m. On a Friday, um, work is done, no important things uh, to do, no calls, anything. And you can wave a magic wand, do whatever you'd like for the weekend. How do you spend that weekend? I go into the woods. I'm a horse and hound person. Okay. Uh, or I go into the water or onto the water. But I guess I'm um, enough of a fin that I, um, I, I go out into the fields or, or to the water and I walk my dog and in, in the Caribbean it means I walk the beach well, that's fair enough that sounds like a lovely uh, weekend um, uh, impromptu weekend um, okay 
Well, listen, uh, Carita, we're coming towards the end of our time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's zoomed by. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, before we get out of here, and uh, this is what I was just referencing a moment ago, any shout-outs or mentions or references to the people at home you would like to, to give or anything like that? Um, they are dispersed all over the world. and uh, But I, I know I don't need to tell them that I think about them all the time. I stick a tip of the cap of your, uh, to your own diplomatic answer there. Uh, the two names that I specifically will drop is uh, your fellow Finn and my former co-worker, Oscar Gothart, um, is uh, now left us from Baker Hughes, but a uh, shout out to him, and now it is from Byro. And of course, uh, the inspirational podcast man himself. Mike McElrath, formerly of Baker Hughes. And uh, look, you've got not only a name drop, but a reference in one of the answers. So look at you. Tip of the cap to you, Mike. Um, and I think that that is it. Uh, Karita, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Um, thanks for coming by the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And also, I didn't mean to name drop. I just wanted to mention names that I think are curious for decades back that kind of everything comes full circle. Thank you very much, Chris. Absolutely. And well, look, I will say there have actually, if you listen to the whole episode, lots of names that are mentioned throughout the show. So anyway, thanks to you for coming by. Um, and uh, we will see you next time. All right. So, Karita, you want to sign us off? My name is Karita Valgren Lindholm, and there is no disputing it. You're listening to the Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. So, there you have it. I hope you could tell from uh, the conversation, perhaps a little bit of the roar in the background, that we had a good time while we were in Scotland. Um, it was really great to catch up with a lot of old friends, make new uh, friends and relationships as well. And Karita, as you can also probably uh, see from that interview, is not shy about sharing her view on um, the state of international arbitration, her perspectives and how she's interacted with it. And it was really great to share that time with her. So uh, Karita, thank you for coming on the show. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. So, uh, with that, uh, Tales of the Tribunal will continue on. We have several more episodes to bring you as part of Season 5. We are still knocking on the door of 30,000 downloads. So, if you were enjoying the show, don't forget to share the show with a friend or colleague. Leave us a review. And, of course, follow us on LinkedIn and spread the word. It's really the best way for others to find the show. And um, I think that is going to wrap it up for this week. Tales of the Tribunal is brought to you by Mo Better Solutions. Music and show music editing is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. All right, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next week, you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.